Hello everyone, I'm Annie Gibbons and you're listening to Memoirs of Successful Women, the podcast where you get to hear candid conversations with fascinating women from around the globe who share aspects of their business and life journey, how they measure their success and what they have learnt along the way. Hello, everybody. I am delighted to introduce today Ali Hensley, who is the founder and vice president of MRKH Australia. And most of you, I'm assuming, do not know what MRKH stands for, but you're going to find out today it relates to a congenital condition that women are born with, one in 5,000 women, actually. And we're going to hear all about Ali and why she's the founder of this um association charity and what it means uh to the people who receive the services that she provides so welcome to the program thanks annie thank you so much that was a really beautiful intro (laughs) and thank you so much for having me on your podcast you are so welcome so tell us all about um first of all what is mrkh just so that we set the scene Sure. So MRKH actually stands for Mayer Rokitansky Kauster Hauser Syndrome, um, named after the four founding physicians, but it is also known within the community um, as malarianogenesis or malarian asplasia, which means basically absence of. You're right, obviously it's one in 5,000 um, females will be impacted um, by this condition and it does occur in the first six to eight weeks of gestation. So it's almost like there's a car going down the genetic path as we're being formed and six to eight weeks, there'll be a kink in or a pothole in that path, um, which basically affects the reproduction development. So there's a formation of the, of the ovaries here and we have estrogen firing, which is why we typically um, externally form as a, as a female, but internally the uterus and the cervix and the vaginal canal fails to form or it's underdeveloped or, or you know, mal- malformed, if you like. Um, so that pretty much obviously is, is the condition in a kind of a very quick nutshell. Most people with MRKH will be diagnosed around about 15, 16, 17, because there's an, an absence of their first period, because there's no uterus. Um, There is ovulation, but there's no actual menstrual cycle. And that's called primary amenorrhea, which is really when a woman will present to a GP or a healthcare professional. And then a series of, I guess, of sort of investigatory ways leads to the MRKH diagnosis. So it really does happen in a very vulnerable time already when we're teenagers trying to figure out who we are and identity and what will be when we grow up as a parent or a partner and it's really interjected with this traumatic um diagnosis yeah (laughs) okay so let's unpack that for the listeners who are just like what on earth so you're telling me that at the early stages of development in utero something doesn't go quite right, doesn't form quite right, Mm. and it's to do with the female reproductive system. And you're saying that one in 5,000 girls at this stage are then missing parts of um, their female reproductive 
um, system and they are unknown. They don't know this because anatomically they look normal. Like so externally you'd have no idea. You then go about your life and then all of a sudden your peers are having periods around age 12, 13 and you get to age, what, 15 going, oh, hello, why have I not had a period? Everything else assumably is normal you know as as we develop and so you're suddenly at a stage where do you go to a doctor and say what is what is not right why haven't I had a period is that the first moment that people would approach Um, typically yes um it really does depend on where in the world you're actually sitting um because the healthcare systems obviously vary from country to country. I would suggest that in the UK where I'm from and where I'm sitting right now, I usually live in Bondi, as you know, um, the NHS system in England is that you will typically go to a GP, like I did. Um, And I was actually sort of sent away. I think a lot of practitioners may just say, just wait a bit longer. Maybe it's something to do with... um, it could be to do with over, you know, athletes you hear about, you know, excessive exercise can delay mm-hmm. the period. It might be, there might be an eating disorder. There might just be something or a late starter. I mean, there doesn't actually have to be a drastic reason. Yeah. Um, but for me in the NHS system, I then got referred on and that typically happens with a lot of cases of MRKH or you'll see your GP, you hopefully will get sort of referred to a specialist but unfortunately that's not always the case which can lead this diagnosis down that that trauma path which is which is why we exist I guess um so yeah that would be really how it's discovered is the the lack of a period it can be more so now I think the way that medicine has changed it can actually be discovered as a secondary um diagnosis where they were maybe getting an MRI or investigating something more primary but then this is discovered as a as a byproduct, if you like, of that initial. Okay, so they're doing an ultrasound and then suddenly go, "Hello, you don't have a uterus. I can't see anything here. What's what's happening?" Yes. Well, yeah, that that can occur, um, and I think it's really interesting. And you know, this we we talk a lot with the medical community about the, the stages of the diagnosis and and what where that happens and and with what practitioner that might happen. Most, I mean, I can't say this is statistically hugely massively correct, but most GPs will see maybe one case in in their life. And Mm. I mean, there is a, there's a lot of conditions out there. There's a lot of knowledge to understand in women's health and MRKH um, is one of many. So most, uh, maybe those on the front line, if you like, to a diagnosis might not even know what MRKH is. They'll be, they might discover it as a, you know, a sonographer, if you like, going, okay, I don't know what this is. And then there might be looks of confusion, which the patient actually gets translates that, that look of confusion. And then they'll go through the process of maybe more specialist care. Wow. 
Okay. So that moment that um, someone is given that diagnosis, and for those who are listening, Ali's obviously had that diagnosis, had that moment, as many, many women around the globe have had that moment of being told, okay, you actually won't be getting your period. You have a condition called MRKH, and it's named after all of um, this unusual name. Um, and so what does that, what, what happens at that moment? How did you feel at that moment? Um, my experience is the expert of my experience. Um, it's really, it's like white noise. Um, I, I just remember not, I can't really remember it. If I'm, if I'm honest, I just remember a lot of white noise and I went through probably two steps before I heard MRKH. So I went to a GP first and I was given, when I did go back after my year of waiting, if I was a late starter, and I actually did have an internal exam. So that was quite traumatic as a 16 year old girl. And the look of, of expression on that GP was something's not right, but we didn't know what. Mm -hmm. And then I went to a sonographer and then there was something that was not quite right, but we didn't still know what that was. So it wasn't until I went in for a laparoscopy, which is sort of a surgical uh, microscope going into your abdomen, was that when I, I found out about that diagnosis in a hospital bed. So there was about a year pro process in this of not quite understanding my body just wasn't quite right. Um, when I came out of the anesthesia, if you like, and I came to, there was a diagram that was sort of shown to me of what my my reproductive system looked like. And I hadn't even fathomed that I was an infertile. And I don't really know what it meant that my vaginal canal was shortened. I thought I was just going to be fixed. Um, and so the real gravity of the situation hadn't sunk in. And I think that that was trauma mm. um, and potentially the early stages of, of a denial there. But that was, I mean, that was sort of the millisecond, I guess, for the whole whole journey because, you know, it got worse before it got better. I, I mean, I have to say, but most people will describe that situation as numb. Um, they don't really hear. They're not really ingesting information. It's just kind of like that thunderbolt of trauma. It's 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 a punch. Um, and it does, I mean, it, it takes various, you know, times that we know to really allow that information to sink in. And that can vary between weeks, months, and in fact, you know, years for people. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I know you can only speak for yourself on behalf of so many and every, every young woman would have obviously their own experience. But I can imagine, I can only imagine how numbing it must be because there's so many things to process in that moment. So one, um, for those who are unaware of the anatomy, you know, that's right, you had this shortened vagina so that from the ex from outside you wouldn't have noticed anything. But if you did an internal, um, there, there won't be much length there, if you like. Um, then you're also, so that's then 
automatically making a process okay you know to obviously be sexually active there's going to have to be some kind of fix here if you like and what does that even mean I have no idea we can explore that um obviously then it's also you know how all that sense of normal and womanness you know like well what what is happening there and then also that's right the whole concept of fertility suddenly unravels and what does this mean for me and that I will not be able to naturally carry a child and and so the whole the whole whole experience I'm thinking compared to any diagnosis it must just be I'm I'm not surprised you've called it as white noise because it must just be like so much to process like what are you actually saying and and it's such a, a shock to so many unlike you who at least have had a year in a way of is something not right here other people just go straight in and have an ultrasound and then get sort of um, have a very quick journey in that process mm. so for you getting that diagnosis what did that what happened then? What was the unraveling? You've mentioned a couple of times the word trauma. What what does that mean to you? Well, I think in quick succession to the word trauma, I would say destruction. Um, it's the it is a complex diagnosis, and it's very, very, very layered, and it is it's big. It's almost too big for a teenage teenager or even I'd say I think it's a family diagnosis I should put that out there I think anyone that, that is within that vicinity of that person will also feel the great impact and grief um but with MRKH it's sort of two-pronged and you, and you mentioned that there's the there's the anatomy of the, the shortened vaginal you know canal which is indicative of I guess our plans to be you know a sexually active partner in in what we would say is penetratively just to sort of sort of be a bit more distinct with that but then there's also the component of infertility and so you're trying to grapple with these two very very big but two very distinct things and and I think they're the two things that we almost feel as rite of passage to womanhood partnership and parenthood and so to hear that that's being dented and that's being interrupted and this is also a time, I think, when you're in your teens where you're really trying to look at, you know, your identity as a person generally anyway. You're forming your self-esteem, you're forming your values, your beliefs, your hopes, your expectations. And when that kind of comes at a, at a rocket speed of, of interruption, then that rewires the brain against a positive path potentially for these values and visions and hopes into a completely negative and I rewired my brain into after white noise came anger frustration confusion and we know that these feelings rise from fear and it was the absolute unknown and the absolute isolation and feeling defected and feeling broken and half of and not enough and grimy and you know, this is, this is intimate stuff. Um, yeah. And this is now being put on to our, you know, our parents and some friendship circles, all of a sudden, there's this microscope looking over your most sensitive parts of yourself that you're not even, you know, you're not even really thinking about or that aware of, you know, you're still learning, developing as an adult. Yeah. Um, so for me, I think I took all those feelings and did my best 
negatively to validate that. So if there was anything I could do to ensure that I was right, I wasn't worthy, I wasn't good enough, Mm. I was like a moth to a flame. And I developed such bad relationships around, you know, food, um, a self-harmer for, you know, a long time, uh, terrible relationships um, romantically. And then always having in the back of my mind that I was very much just a passenger in life, you know, and I wasn't really participating because I felt different. So I didn't know how to have conversations with my peers about periods and contraception. I know I lied a lot and I went home and kind of studied the names of so I could have some sort of input. Um, And I tried my bestest to put a face on and a mask on um, and from the outside, I probably looked quite a confident, gregarious um, person, but I was absolutely broken inside. I was grief stricken and I didn't know how to articulate that. So I just did all the bad things as my means of communication and probably cries for help. Um, but yes, and that, that was a, a big 15 years, I have to say, of, of that behavior. Mm. Oh, and I was back to... Yeah, I, I was just. It's yeah. not surprising. It's fifteen years because it's yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot to unpack, and that's it. When you're learning of this diagnosis at such a vulnerable age, and it just throws you for a six, you know. I imagine people respond in a, a variety of different ways, you know, um, from not wanting, you know, thinking, oh, well, maybe, you know, do, do I want to prove myself normal and prove myself, you know, sexually active and lovable and and um, able in these areas? And with that, I know, becomes um, a lot of um, very very um, painful and, and stressful treatment. And then there's other people will approach it and go, okay, well, is this a sign? Am I gay? You know, should I just avoid sex altogether all and, and, and not have this issue? But then that, you know, maybe that is or isn't me anyway. So there's so many things that are forming um, in your mindset in those late teens, early 20s to 30s. Um, it's it's not surprising at all uh, that you know people will respond in their own, the only way that they can you know which is going to be different for every person and I I thank you so much for your honesty in sharing that so when you when you actually got what what stage did you get to and you suddenly went enough you know I need to who am I? You know, what does this all mean for me? When you had finished that 15-year journey, what happened? I think it's a series. I think it's a series of sort of, I call them my turnaround moments. Um, Sort of putting context on this next part. With people with MRKH, because of the shortening of the vaginal canal, um, there is treatment that's available for people with MRKH and that could be surgical or non-surgical to create that. And I went into hospital for three days to do the dilatory therapy program at a really great hospital in London called the Queen Charlotte's in Chelsea. Um, And I was taught how to make a vagina basically out of Pyrex molds. And that process was sort of, it started in hospital and then it went on for nine months when I got my finished product, if you like. But I remember a few years back, I actually had the privilege of meeting a psychologist that was also present at the hospital at the time when I was there when I was 17. 
And she said to me, Ali, if there is a period of your life that I would really love to work on, it's that time in hospital. And I thought that was really interesting because I thought that such a short time was the catalyst for so much. Hmm. And she was absolutely spot on. I now have kind of found the words to articulate that process. And for me, it felt like self-inflicted harm with my own consent. I was hurting myself. I was giving consent to do that, but it felt it felt abusive to me. It, it felt painful and it felt dirty and it felt shameful. And so all those feelings sort of cascaded in silence for such a long time that I got to a point, yeah, about eight, eight years ago or so. And I just remember thinking, I am so exhausted with hating myself. This is absolutely such a tiring, destructive um, existence. And one of those turnaround moments was my mum suffered a stroke at that time and she recovered really, really well. But she is kind of my hero, I think, and my best friend. And, and I remember thinking if she has the courage to heal herself and to recover and really um, try hard to overcome that adversity, then it would be such an injustice if I didn't attempt to do the same. Um, I was living in, in Bondi and I, I still am when I'm not in a UK sort of lockdown <laughs> and it's a wonderful hub of yoga and spirituality. And I, um, I found myself on the yoga mat, like a lot of people do. And I just remember thinking it was the safe place to really get to know Ali again um, where you can't run off a yoga mat and you're being really confronted with your feelings. And so for me, it had nothing to do with the fancy poses. It was really my own little love affair with myself. Um, and also I was looking for help and I thought I really need to get a relationship going with MRKH. I really need to start understanding what role it's played in my life. Um, and I talk about this a lot in advocacy about, you know, having a conversation with your diagnosis. What does it look like, sound like? Mm. What's the impact like? What is its identity with you? And um, I reached out to the Royal Hospital uh, Hospital for Women in Sydney and I asked if a support group existed, knowing that other countries, two other countries in the world were successfully running peer support groups. Um, and I wanted to go to one myself and mm. I got it. A really great email back from the CEO who copied a, a doctor and Dr. Rebecca Deans and Jennifer Morrissey. And they said, we don't have a peer support group, but we really want to get one up and running. And you seemingly have the skills and the confidence, unbeknownst to me at that time, <laughs> that this is something that we could do. And yeah, it just, it was kind of in, I guess, in, in creating this peer support group and, and coordinating the first event, I, in turn, it was healing myself. I always think that's a really important thing. I think acts of service actually can, you know, do an awful lot back for yourself. Oh, um, so much. Yeah. And that's really, those are, and my, you know, really sort of unhealthy relationship ended. And there was just these little things. And it was kind of like this wonderful engineering. And of I always call it, when I went into sort of a recovery mm. phase of my life. And so I really, it's a very, very distinct part of chapter that, that, that start back in, yeah, eight years ago. Mm. So eight years ago, you did this big moment of, okay, enough, I'm going to learn about myself and I'm also going to then put myself out there and say, you know, because that's pretty bold. It's pretty bold to then be the face of, you know, this, this condition. 
if you like, mm. as well as learning about yourself and then offering to say, you know, okay, well, if there's no group, I'll start it up. Um, and as you said, that's an opportunity to then give back and to be that support that, you know, others have never had, you know. Mm. So for the new women coming through and getting that diagnosis and having no one, you know, it, it now gives them a community. And that community when you started that was Sisters for Love. It was called Sisters for Love. And it operated for then the following eight years. And Jennifer Morrissey over at the Royal Women's is an amazing nurse and has, has been incredibly supportive in that time, as has the hospital. So then you, um, throughout that journey, you've also been working and living your life and, you know, paying the bills and doing all those yeah. sorts of things. And then suddenly you went, what was the shift to turn Sisters for Love into MRKH Australia? How did you sort of make that happen? So much of the, much of the early stages of the Sisters for Love really was about raising awareness of these four letters um that was the that was the goal originally I'd love to have brought you know a charity status on much much earlier but I realized that we can't raise we can't raise funds and donations if we don't even know bless you <laughs> if we can't if we can't sort of advocate for what these four letters mean, we don't know yeah. what specialists are working in Australia with our Mark AH. We don't know where our community's sitting. We don't know what the the reaction will be of the medical community or or even, you know, your you, you average Joe, really. We just really wanted to talk about what MRKH is. And so in those initial years was really just putting it out there and out there and out there and start repeating the diagnosis honestly factually openly um and I I like to think of myself as good with people so I think a lot of my time was really nurturing relationships with hospitals and, and doctors and people and that takes time and trust you know doctors are very very busy people and so if you get this email from Ali Hensley talking about you know oh peer support group and this is what we're doing it's lovely yeah. but it might not necessarily be that massive priority so what we were trying to do was create some understanding that peer support was actually a massive part of yeah. the diagnosis and treatment journey you know empathy connection sharing stories understanding you know like-minded people not being alone and isolated it took massive amount of time and the lovely Jackie Quinlan um and I loved kind of doing all that raising awareness and and lovely little videos and really connecting with our community and doing events and and we did so much but really like any any organization we were kind of at our capacity as, as two people we were maintaining what we were doing but we weren't growing it and really to reach everyone in Australia that hopes to have support we're not saying everyone with MRKH needs us and mm. if they don't that's almost a good thing in that way but those who do need us um we need to ramp it up a bit yeah I've I've known Christy Sinkowski for three, four years now, I think. And we met in a peer support group in Sydney. And Christy and I got talking after that, that meeting. And I realized that we were both very similar also in that, in that way that Jackie and I were of really wanting to dismantle and break down the diagnosis so we could really start advocating on kind of a bigger, bigger scale. Mm -hmm. 
She is an incredible technical-minded person. She works wonderful on health uh, policy. Um, she's incredibly organized, methodical, all these wonderful skills. You know, I'm kind of like a creative and I'm like big picture. Yeah. <laughs> I think that. Whereas Chrissy had all these wonderful skills. Um, and she put in a submission with the Victorian um, government. It was part of a, a grant submission um, for communities like ours. And, she, you know, she, she was successful. <laughs> she got us a lot of money, um, enough to start a registered charity. And so in October of last year, we were awarded this grant. And then this year, early, we appointed um, a solicitors to help us go through not-for-profit registration, which is huge. Um, we recruited this wonderful brand agency in Sydney to rebrand us. You know, the Sisters for Love is a legacy. It always will be, but we wanted to freshen up our face. We have a, now a wonderful board. Annie, thank you for joining our MRKH Australian board. Um, and so it was really recognising all the work that's been done in, in MRKH sort of advocacy in Australia and awareness and then taking it to that, that next level to be sustainable, to be bigger, to have bigger impact and greater reach. Yeah. So exciting. And as Ali said, yes, I am a board member and I'm so delighted to be so as I do know someone with MRKH and it is on my heart. And I've just watched with great joy seeing this organisation. I always love it when I watch people who have done, who've just done the hard yards, they've put out years of service because it's the right thing to do, because it adds value, because they're passionate about it, which is what you had done with Sisters for Love. You know, you'd set this incredible foundation foundation that then realized you know oh my goodness when we partner up and and you know what you've gone and gone and given your colleagues such a big rap but you've got incredible skills you know it's your skills of actually doing all of that networking and high profile relationship building and you know that's it with women in business you know it's all of this these diverse skills that actually make it all come together you know and we often look at other people and go oh wow they're really amazing they've got all these things and you know you're we are all uniquely amazing and special in in the skill set that we have and you have incredibly strong skill set um, in in what you do in being able to be a champion for this new charity and to to go ahead and apply for this grant and then set yourself up in a really um, professional manner to to know what it requires to you know start a charity from scratch and to be able to get all the documentation and the paper you know the paperwork and the frank the policies and the procedures it's a huge learning curve and so uh it's certainly been extra admirable coming on board um onto your board and to be able to see how you operate and i'm just been so impressed and not only impressed with you uh, personally but also what you what you stand for that you know what you're wanting to give out to people with mrkh you know Obviously, you're mrkhaustralia.org, by, by the way, for those who are going to the website, but also in a global sphere. You know, you're in the UK at the moment. You're already, you, you're on, um, in magazines and on interviews and, and promoting uh, what MRKH is. And it's so um, 
it's so impressive to see someone who who actually you know it doesn't matter what the condition is and it doesn't matter what the situation is it says well this is important for me and this and if it's important for me it's important for all the people that I represent right and therefore I'll do my very very best service to be able to provide them for um you know a better outcome better support better better networks better services and I think that's so amazing it's such an amazing quality that you have (laughs) Annie please never leave my side (laughs) receive that receive that in great love no it's really I I meet a lot of people and I'm just I am really humbled because it's so it's such a special quality a lot of people do things for the quick wins you know as we know in business or the quick you know um gratitude but I I watch people who've done things you know for decades of more and there's just so much so much in that so so now you've set up this charity MRKH Australia and what does that mean what does it mean in a global perspective what does it mean what are you what are you wanting to offer people with MRKH and their families obviously all of their supporters friends everybody who's connected to someone who has this diagnosis um I think so we have I'd say we have four main functions um which is peer support um, in terms of advocating for mental health, mental health awareness and some support around that that structure and how do we offer peer support? Is it online? Is it face-to-face? Is it events? Is it in conferences? So I think that's our first primary goal is always for the MRKH community, be it in Australia or, you know, overseas. um, We're inclusive in that way. Uh, the next, I guess, function for us would be medical stroke research. So we're really proud that we take time to build great relationships with healthcare providers, both in Australia and overseas, because that leads to a number of other avenues. For instance, um, I have partnered with the University of Queensland with two genetic researchers who are actually looking at the genetic causes behind MRKH and that a relationship allowed us to go to our community and ask for participation in that way. So kind of aiding that research to be better informed about the diagnosis um, and also being involved with the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital in Sydney now who are looking at the uterus transplant trials. So that's a really huge, significant relationship to have being part of that surgical team as a patient advocate is also representing the community, being a conduit for our community between healthcare providers um, and patients. We've discussed, I think, in one of our meetings about, you know, the role around awareness stroke advocacy. And it's a really interesting, and I, I think it we kind of hit the nail on the head about what does advocacy really truly mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, it means looking at a situation, looking at a cause and knowing what to do with it, whether you want to enhance its qualities, if we want to remove it, tweak it or change it. And I think that's the role of the advocate is to really observe your cause and your why and how to better improve it for future patient care. And then obviously is to hopefully raise funds and donations to be sustainable, to be able to offer people travel grants to meetings, to um, almost or have treatment say in a hospital where they can't afford to get to maybe Sydney for inpatient treatment to have resources um, that are funded and other opportunities I mean there really is endless endless opportunities with that 
And then that kind of is all for the purpose of our community and our stakeholders. So the, the people with MRKH, their parents, their partners, and the healthcare providers. Um, and there's a, you know, there's a few more over here to do maybe with fertility and surrogacy and, and all the family planning aspects. So I think that was, you know, your question is saying really what is MRKH Australia? And I think it's a, a wonderful, one of the few not-for-profits in the world that advocates for this condition. As you said, I'm, I work very closely with, with overseas advocates, I've got a great relationship with the, the charity in America, now doing a lot of work in the UK. And as part of that, we did form in 2016 Global MRKH, which is the first international consortium for, um, not. it wasn't to act as a support group per se, but it really is to build in all the world's advocates and doctors and, and psychologists and researchers and say, what does MRKH look like on your radar? What are you doing of best practice? What are you doing over here? How does that work? Okay, well, what are you doing to grow interest there? And yeah. how can we help the underrepresented and the under-marginalized um, communities? Because I think advocacy, I always say you can call yourself an advocate when you've reached the one person that doesn't know you even exist yet. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And then and then you're an advocate. You know, there's people out there that need help that don't even know what MRKH is and we need to find those people and then look after everybody else that's come through our doors. Yeah. So tell me, what is, is there a different journey now, 20 years later, if someone was diagnosed, if that 15-year-old girl was diagnosed today, are they uh, have things improved for them as a pathway to being able to be supported psychologically um, within their health condition compared to when you went that through that experience? Worlds apart, Annie. Worlds apart. Um, first, I mean, first of all, we didn't really have. I mean, social media, as much as it can be a bugbear of mine, I think social media has done us so much goodness in the community. I think the formula really for that healing or that peer support pathway comes from connections and comes from empathizing with someone else who's going through the same, the same thing. And because of social media and because of basically patients leading their own advocacy, women for women has been a huge part of over the last 10 to 12 years. And so when I was diagnosed, there wasn't, an online peer support group. There wasn't the um, resources and there wasn't the research to understand. I mean, we didn't know really that the impact and the adjustment periods and, and the stages of, of MRKH through the ages, we didn't know any of that. So we didn't really understand its complications. So it wasn't just mm. the absence of, I guess, an online presence. It was also the absence of knowledge. Mm. And the MRKH community are a really great, graceful but fierce bunch of people and they um they really do and I, I've never come across I always say I've never come across someone with MRKH that isn't humble and isn't gracious um and so I think we've really looked after our community with kind of like some unspoken uh, unspoken terms and conditions and that just comes down to trust and respect so for me yes it's it's massive and I was speaking to a friend of mine the other day and she was saying that another of her friends who doesn't have MRKH was like your community just looks so cool and it's really interesting because <laughs> if you said that to a person with MRKH they're like, they're like what? What? <laughs> we're not we're not cool we don't want to be here 
but it's just it's really interesting because we do have a huge sense of connection and we are inspiring and, and we don't just it's not lip service when we say we're mentor and we really support each other we literally have whatsapp groups saying have you you know are you speaking to that person are they okay we've got a bit of a and then, okay well I'll go and speak to them or they need a referral in India for a, maybe a peer over here in India and let's try to match them up and that's all going on behind the scenes so it's quite incredible and I think there's about 21 groups if you like around the world now advocating and some really fierce voices in countries that would be very difficult to advocate and stand up and you know use that word you know vagina and use that word infertility it's yeah it's um it's punishable in certain countries to have MRKH so I think we just are changing the narrative around stigma and taboo in women's health um and really trying to do that, I think, honestly, intelligently, and understanding, like, and, and inviting the skills of others into the community, you know, as you say, with yourself, Annie, um, with healthcare providers, with people with like-minded passions, but not necessarily have MRKH. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's what we're trying to do now. And as someone who's had MRKH for 22 years, I'm now understanding what it really means to have self-worth mm. and be comfortable in my skin. And, and that's, a, it seems very, well not, I'm sure it's not, but it's obviously it's quite a simplistic way of me saying that, but my new type, my new sort of mantra is it's not our job or my job to convince you of my self-worth. It's just my job to be kind and compassionate. And I think if we just keep being honest to those sort of deal breaking edges of, of uncomfortable slowly I think that's where we're going to start seeing significant change in women's health yeah mm. so how can people support you Ali if someone wants to so you're doing all of this voluntarily you've set up your own organization you're 100% passionate about it you've got a tribe of women who help other women doing these support groups you've been doing it for a decade and you've got a small grant really um, how do people um, help support MRKH Australia Oh, a, a plethora of ways. And you, yeah, you, you mean, of course, you're right. We do do it voluntarily. And I think it's also really important to have passion behind anything you do as a, as a volunteer, because that stokes the flame, you know, over years. And um, so one of the things that we've definitely been speaking about is that we want to have, we want to be community engaged. So we don't want to be over here doing work for the community without having any insight into what is it you actually want and need from us. We're here to serve you. Um, and so we've been very much getting our community involved in the online peer support groups, which are really amazing opportunities for people to voice how they want to see advocacy moving. Um, of course, one of our biggest goals is to is to raise funds. Um, we do have the function to, as a registered charity now to seek out donors. And I think that can come in the form of small fundraisers to big conscious um, donor investments. And I think that's something that I'm very much geared towards because it will give us the ability to not only sustain ourselves from you know one year to the next, but also to have opportunities to do some great research projects, get some travel grants, um, be able to really support our community who are living maybe over in WA or the Northern Territory and get them to Sydney to sort of understand and, and participate in what peer support group 
groups look like. Um, we have a really great uh, feature on our website, which is the journal. So I'm a writer. I love words and it words were my freedom. Um, it's how I kind of did a lot of self-discovery without sounding a bit cliche. Um, and there's a lovely opportunity for people to write and contribute for our website. Um, of course, they'll be mentored and look, looked after in that process of disclosure potentially. And I would, you know, just spreading the word for us because whilst we have our networks and we can do a lot of our PR and media and things like that, um, it only takes one share that someone else who might have MRKH who looks at that to come to us. Mm -hmm. So we are very new. We are kind of in our infancy, um, but we have a whole heap of opportunities for our community, both, you know, volunteer and donor and um yeah, just, just having an opportunity if you are someone with MRKH that support is waiting waiting for you. Mm. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. So, yes, you can help in many ways, but let's face it, I'll do a sell for Ali. <laughs> if you do have funds and even if it's a small amount of money, if you can go to mrkhaustralia.org forward slash donation, give um, a, a donation to MRKH as, as it's a registered charity, it is tax deductible. What you're actually seeing, I'll, I'll give you an example of what, you know, some funds could do. So if you're that 15, 16 year old girl and you're living in a rural remote area and you've just been diagnosed with MRKH and you might be told that you need to now go to Sydney or Melbourne or a metropolitan city to go into a hospital to have, you know, three to five days of vaginal stretching, for example, uh, and which is just a total overwhelming experience, which then also has a financial burden of travel and accommodation. Um, not only you, hopefully your mom or your sister or someone can come with you. And these are the realities of costs that are involved. And then it's like, well, do I even do it? And what does this all mean? And, and so forth. So it can be something like that. It can pay for mental health support. It can pay for someone to be able to attend a support group of which, you know, these people actually, these are women who relate to me. You know, other people, I don't even feel brave enough to share my story. And, and these people, I don't have to because they just know you know mm. and so it's an area that I'm just so grateful that we are talking about so openly uh, because it is it is it is just one condition you know it's one condition that affects women out of you know uh, the millions of different conditions that help um, affect different people but it is such a personal um, condition that is deeply embedded in people's whole self-value self-worth um, identity and it's so complex and I think it's so important to be able to talk about it um, on this podcast and and so therefore if you are able to support I thoroughly encourage you to um, be able to reach out and I know that those people on my podcast are asked to donate to your charity because it is is is, is going to add so much value to those um, that you reach so let's finish this podcast with um, what do you see as a successful woman Ali what are the qualities of success and what does that actually even mean to you oh, I think a successful woman for me is someone who speaks her truth first and foremost that won't mold to what the expectation 
she thinks that she should be rather than who she wants to be. I think that's first and foremost being, yeah, speaking your truth. Persistence for me, I am quite a persistent person. And I think that um, being tenacious and being ambitious is what it has given me great success. Mm. Um, and I also just think it's, I think it's just, ha- I think it's just having res- res- respect for people. Mm. So whether you're in the boardroom or whether you're in a, you know, managing your own restaurant or whether you're in a charity, I just think that the, at the core of that is connection to people mm. and, and having great respect for those people. So my answers probably aren't as business, like sort of a business perspective, I guess, persona, if you like, but I've only had my success from deciding not to withhold who I truly am hmm. and not apologizing for that and not filtering myself um, and, and sort of feeling like I should belong if I do X, Y, and Z. So for me, it's, it's about, yeah, there's, there's a humble fierceness. And I think if you can coexist with those two things, you'll be pretty fierce and successful. Well, well done for demonstrating that to us today. I think it's just been so wonderful chatting with you and I wish you all the best success for MRKH Australia and the service that you provide to women who need to uh, reach out to you to get the support services that you offer. Thanks, Annie. I love this. Thank you so much for everything. Everything. (laughs) (laughs) It's a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Memoirs of Successful Women. You can find me at anniegibbons.com where you can download my free resources, get connected on social and check out my online magic transformation program. If you love this show, feel free to subscribe to future episodes and of course, share it with your friends. I'll see you again soon and until then, happy podcasting.